Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Annie Fenn. Dr. Fenn is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist specializing in menopausal health. After practicing medicine for more than 20 years in Jackson, Wyoming, she realized that helping people change what they eat was more effective at improving health than prescribing pills or procedures. She traded her stethoscope for an apron and went back to school to study culinary arts in Mexico, Italy, and at the Culinary Institute of America. In 2015, Dr. Fenn founded the Brain Health Kitchen, an evidence-based online resource about how and what to eat to resist cognitive decline. The Brain Health Kitchen Cooking School, founded in 2017, is the only school of its kind focused specifically on fending off Alzheimer's and other dementias. Students learn which foods are most neuroprotective, which ones accelerate cognitive decline, and how to prepare foods using brain-friendly cooking techniques. Dr. Fenn takes her cooking school on the road to provide classes throughout the country and abroad. To date, more than 1,000 participants have enrolled in the hands-on cooking school. I was having such a great time talking with Dr. Fenn that I wanted to talk to her all day. I know you're going to love this interview. But first, I want to share an Apple Podcast review with you. Jissy Loves Dollas rated the Health Investment Podcast five stars and wrote, My friend Nicole recommended this podcast. I've been in a rut since the beginning of quarantine, and even though I'm only a few episodes in, I'm so glad I found it. Brooke has an amazing voice. I enjoy the range of topics she covers. Okay, I have two things to say to you, Jissy Loves Dollas. First of all, thank you so much for your five-star written review. And secondly, I'm so glad my voice doesn't sound as weird to you as it does to me. You know when you hear the sound of your own voice on your voicemail and you cringe? Well, try listening to it every time you edit a podcast episode. It still weirds me out to listen to myself. So this review was very reassuring. I really appreciate it. If you haven't taken two minutes to leave a review yet, I'd so appreciate it if you did. Every time I get a new review, it seriously makes my day. And reviews also make this podcast more visible in search results, which means I can reach more people. That's my ultimate goal, to empower as many people as possible to invest in their health so that they can look and feel their best. So thank you so much in advance. Okay, it's time to hear from Dr. Fenn. Enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, 
BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Fenn. Thank you so much for being here today on the Health Investment Podcast. It's such a treat to have you on. Thank you, Brooke. It's great to be here. I was wondering if you could just start by telling us all your story and your background and specifically what led your mission, led to your mission to wipe out Alzheimer's one brain healthy recipe at a time. I love how you say that. Oh, thanks, Brooke. And please call me Annie. Um, oh, okay. Everyone calls me Annie or Dr. Annie, uh, depending on the situation. Um, so my story, it might seem a little strange because I'm, an, I'm actually an OBGYN physician and I practiced medicine in Jackson, Wyoming, where I lived for 20 years. And then I retired from medicine because I just was itching to use a different part of my brain, so to speak. And so I didn't, wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do, but I knew it was going to be in the space of health and food and preventive medicine. So I ended up going back to school. And this time I went to culinary school in Italy, in Mexico, and a few other places. Ended up at the Culinary Institute of America for some training. And I went back into my community and I started teaching cooking classes because I really thought that I could only do so much with surgeries and medications and all the things I had been trained to offer patients for their health. And I felt like the root of the problem was really that people needed to live healthier lifestyles. And that included brain healthy food. I became interested in the brain health component, you know, right around 2015 or so. Um, I was writing an article for a newspaper column that I had, and I came across a study called The Mind Diet out of Rush University, and it was linking a certain type of dietary pattern, which is a spinoff of the Mediterranean diet, to an incredibly reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. So I read the study, and I was like, wow, nobody knows about this. I'm going to write this week's article about that. And then I started teaching brain-healthy classes in my community, and it all became focused on that. Wow. You mentioned, I'm always curious about this, you mentioned that you lived in Italy for a bit in Mexico. I know people travel over there and they say that the food is different, it's fresher, the meat is different. Did you notice that at all when you were living in Italy? Um, I never actually lived in Italy, but I've spent month-long stints there, Um, you know, basically under the tutelage of, of home cooks and places all over. You know, Italy has a lot of the same problems as the United States has now, sadly, with their food supply, where they're eating a lot more processed food. They're eating a lot more grab-and-go. They're using less healthy olive oils. But if you go to the really small towns, like my family is from a very small town in Sicily, and if you go to these far-flung places, they still eat traditional foods and enjoy the longevity and the reduced risk of dementia because of it. Mm, okay. Yeah. Because you, you know, I don't know if you've heard those, but I've heard those stories of, oh, I eat the pasta in Italy and it doesn't affect me like the pasta here. And generally maybe that's because it's homemade in, like you said, the smaller towns, but probably not in bigger cities. Yeah, I think it's definitely true with the wheat. The wheat that they grow in Italy is less hybridized and less genetically modified than the wheat in the U.S. So I know people not that are celiac because they can't eat any wheat at all, but those that are gluten sensitive or maybe have a slight allergy, can't eat, you know, pasta in America, but they can eat it over there. And I think it's a higher quality, less hybridized wheat that's that's just less inflammatory to them. Hmm. That's absolutely true. Yeah, interesting. So just to kind of tackle some Alzheimer's basics, because I'm really fascinated. Um, I know people in my family have been affected by Alzheimer's, and I think, sadly, 
most of us can say the same. So just to kind of pick your brain about this, pun intended, (laughs) uh, is the disease at all genetic or is research suggesting that it's completely preventable through diet and lifestyle choices? Well, there is a strong genetic component to Alzheimer's, but not as much as people would think. You know, you have to separate out, there's, there's two main categories of Alzheimer's disease. One is early onset, which sadly afflicts people in their 40s and 50s. And this is from an autosomal dominant genetic variant that's carried through families. So these mm-hmm. families will have a story of having someone in every generation with early onset Alzheimer's. It's very heartbreaking. It was the type of Alzheimer's that was depicted in the movie Still Alice years ago. And that is rare. That is less than 1% of all Alzheimer's cases is this early onset, very genetically linked type. The garden variety or the more common type of Alzheimer's is, is considered to be late onset or starting after the age of 60 or 65. And this also has a genetic component, but... You know, it's also like like most chronic diseases we're finding, it's complicated. It's a it's a mix of diet, lifestyle, environmental influences, all amongst a background of genetic vulnerability. So mm-hmm. people with um, a genetic variant called APOE4 mm-hmm. is a genetic variant that is very common in in um, in, in most people. Um, they may have an increased risk of Alzheimer's because of this genetic variant. It doesn't mean that they have Alzheimer's or they're going to get it for sure. It just means that they're slightly more vulnerable. I see. Do you recommend that people get tested for that as soon as possible just to know or not so much? That's a super difficult question. It would be a great thing for people to talk to their physicians about because there are good reasons for getting tested and knowing Um, Number one, if you're the kind of person that would take a positive result, like an APOE4 positive test, and then turn your lifestyle into something that could be preventive of Alzheimer's disease, that would be a good thing. But if you're the Mm -hmm. type of person that would be very stressed out, or if it would cause anxiety, knowing that you have a possible risk factor for Alzheimer's, then it may not be worth it. I recommend that everyone just become aware of the things you can do to protect your brain from Alzheimer's and slow down the aging of your brain, whether you're APOE4 positive or not. Right. And then I'm sure all of those things that you would do, all those choices would also prevent other chronic illnesses as well. That's absolutely true. So just act as if you have, as act as if you're predisposed and then live a healthy lifestyle regardless. I mean, specifically with women, women make up two thirds of all of Alzheimer's victims. So women are especially vulnerable to Alzheimer's. So the two biggest risk factors really are getting older and being female. So I think mm-hmm. women, all women should just be aware of that and you know, make, make the effort to reduce any of the, um, the factors we know definitely increase the risk. So you said early onset Alzheimer's. Is that the same thing as when people say there's early signs of Alzheimer's or that's different? No, it's very confusing. Early onset Early onset Alzheimer's is that genetic form that afflicts people in their 40s and 50s. Okay. And then early signs is just when somebody has late stage Alzheimer's, but they're showing early signs of it. Exactly. So early Alzheimer's is considered to be mild cognitive impairment or MCI. It's one of the stages of Alzheimer's and it's the very first one where you can detect 
memory loss and forgetting things and getting lost and those sorts of things that are common. So at that point, if somebody's showing those early signs, is there anything possible they can do at that point to reverse it? There, there are some things you can do. This is a really important point because a lot of people, they feel like they're, they're experiencing memory loss or subjectively feel like there's something wrong with their brain, like they're getting Alzheimer's in those early stages. One of the first things people do is they hide it, even from their family. Um, and it's hard to come out of the closet, so to speak, and admit that you're having memory problems because there's such a stigma to it. And not all of these early memory problems are from Alzheimer's. So it's absolutely crucial that if someone's experiencing cognitive changes like memory loss, they go talk to their physician about it because there are things that are not Alzheimer's that can cause memory loss that are easily reversible. Like it could be from stress or sleep deprivation or drug interactions, um, things of that nature. So there are reversible forms of memory loss. If it is indeed Alzheimer's, it's very controversial whether or not that can be reversed at all, but the process can be slowed down. And that's an important point. And then that would be through the diet and lifestyle changes we will talk about is how you would slow it down. Yeah. There are, there are hundreds of studies ongoing about how do you take someone with mild cognitive impairment or that earliest stage and keep their brain from going off on the trajectory where it has overt Alzheimer's. Mm. And then are there drug interventions at that point as well, or do those come later? There are some. I mean, it's, it's actually sad. Even though there's been billions of dollars spent on Alzheimer's research, we only have a handful of FDA-approved drugs. And the best we can do is to give a drug that turns back the clock on Alzheimer's by, you know, maybe six months. Mm. So drug intervention has really not been very successful for this disease, um, which opens up the realm of most of the research I follow is in the prevention world. And there's huge possibilities there that we could prevent as much as 30 to 50, some say 90% of all Alzheimer's cases with diet wow. and lifestyle. Wow. That's incredible. Um, especially since so much money has gone into creating these drugs you know, to think that it just, again, goes back to basics of just the choices you're making every day. Exactly. I, I look at it as a, as a largely preventable disease in most people, not all, because, you know, we talked about that early onset with a strong um, genetic component. We don't really know how to help those people yet. Um, but for the, the most common type of Alzheimer's, it's very much a lifestyle disease. Hmm. Are there any early, early signs of Alzheimer's? For example, if somebody has another chronic condition like type 2 diabetes, is that a sign that somebody may be more predisposed to Alzheimer's? It's definitely a risk factor. It's long been known that people with type 2 diabetes have a threefold increased risk of Alzheimer's later in life. And what we found recently is that people that don't even have diabetes, but they just have borderline borderline abnormal blood sugar. Like, you know, when you go in, you get your health panel and there's usually a fasting blood sugar done with it. Um, when people get that blood sugar and it's just a little bit high, studies now show that even having that can increase your risk of Alzheimer's by as much as twofold later in life. So there's a, a big connection between our metabolic health, you know, how we metabolize blood sugar, um, how much insulin we produce, 
how resistant our tissues become to that insulin and getting Alzheimer's later. Huh. That's, that's really interesting. What are some of the mi- common misconceptions floating around? Maybe you already tackled a few, but just that people still believe about Alzheimer's or that aren't actually true. Well, I think the biggest misconception is that Alzheimer's is just something you get when you get to a certain age. You know, people say, oh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's. She was 75 and then she got Alzheimer's. But it's a much more complicated disease than that. It, does, you don't, it doesn't just happen, um, you know, at a certain age. Alzheimer's actually starts in the brain 20 to 30 years before you have any signs of memory loss or any of the other symptoms. So Alzheimer's, I look at it as a process that happens in your brain, you know, throughout your life, starting in young adulthood in your 30s, there's insults from the environment, say like pollution or from food products, from stress from all sorts of things in your environment, things that you eat, and these all come into play with, you know, your background of genetic vulnerability or not. And this is what happens over years of exposure to certain brain insults and toxins. So um, it's a process. And because it's a process, I think that means we can slow it down and, and largely prevent it. So yeah, let's talk about that now. I'm sure everyone's dying to know the lifestyle and diet modifications you recommend. So starting with diet, what should we be eating to prevent Alzheimer's, hopefully? Well, the dietary pattern, I don't, I don't really love the word diet. I'm sure you don't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but in, in these terms, we have to sort of talk about certain diets. Um, but I like to think of dietary patterns because these right. are not prescribed ways of eating, but you get to pick and choose what you want from a large variety of things. The Mediterranean diet, Terry Pattern, which a lot of people are familiar with, has literally dozens and dozens of studies looking at how it promotes brain health, prevents Alzheimer's and other types of dementia, as well as cardiovascular disease, and is also linked to longevity. So Mediterranean diet is basically our best bet when it comes to preventing Alzheimer's. Now, the MIND diet, the M-I-N-D diet that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that is a spinoff of the Mediterranean diet that was created to be specifically brain healthy. So the researchers at Rush University who created the MIND diet, they said, look, we know that the Mediterranean diet is associated with less Alzheimer's, more longevity. And we know that there are certain food groups like berries, leafy greens, and nuts that are also associated with less dementia. So what if we make a a brain-specific Mediterranean diet and test it on a group of people? And that's what they did. So they took roughly 850 people who did not have dementia. They had healthy brains going into the study. They put them on this MIND diet, which describes 10 brain-healthy food groups, and five brain unhealthy ones. And they followed them for about five years. And what they found was the people that followed the mind diet most closely, they had 53% less Alzheimer's at the end of the study. So then what are the 10 food groups to focus on? Well, it's very much similar to the Mediterranean diet, except there are, okay. still a, there are a few differences. So the Mediterranean diet, as most people know, is based on you know whole foods like fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, legumes, like beans, and also a good amount of fish and seafood, smaller amounts of poultry, small amounts of meat, 
Um, famously, the Mediterranean diet includes red wine, um, and meals are taken in the company of family and friends. Mm-hmm. And there's also a component of activity with that. So with the MIND diet, what they did was they separated out the most brain-healthy food groups, like berries. Berries are its own food group in the MIND diet. And that comes from individual studies looking at berries in memory, berries in dementia, and how adding just two half-cup servings of berries to your diet per week can actually slow down the aging of your brain. Wow, two half cups per week? That's it. I mean, you can certainly okay. eat more berries than that. I, I do. I try to eat berries every day. Um, but, you know, it can be fresh berries. It can be frozen berries. It can be any type of berries. Um, the studies were mostly done on blueberries and strawberries. Well, I think that's a really good little caveat you bring up, too, is that, you know, sometimes berries in the store can get rot very quickly if you buy them fresh or maybe not even be as fresh I as from my understanding as frozen berries because from what I understand they're flash frozen the second they're harvested and they can often be cheaper as well so that could even be somebody listening buying bags of big frozen berries and using them in a smoothie or something that would be a way to add them in oh absolutely and it's the pigments in the berries it's, it's primarily the blue black and dark red pigments in berries that contain this phytonutrient called anthocyanin that basically scrubs the brain of any kind of amyloid plaque that's trying to deposit. An amyloid plaque seems to be a protein, a sticky protein that accumulates in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. So hmm. the berries is, is, is having this like super active phytonutrient that just really cleans up a lot of the oxidative stress in the brain. And then you mentioned nuts. Is that all nuts or certain ones are better? Um, there are, some nuts are better than others. The whole thing with nuts is that nuts are such a great source of the type of fat I like to call brain friendly, the monounsaturated fats. So if you looked at nuts, they're not all created equal. Some are higher in saturated fats, say macadamia nuts, and some are teeming with these monounsaturated nuts or fats like walnuts. Walnuts are considered to be the brain healthiest nuts, but also almonds and cashews and Brazil nuts and pecans are also super, super good for the brain because of the type of fat they have and because they also provide a lot of vitamin E, which is another antioxidant that's important for brain health. I remember reading somewhere that walnuts even, they're kind of, they look like a brain. Have you ever heard of somebody even, say that? They even look like a brain. Exactly. Yeah. So eat the, eat the nut that looks like a brain to help your brain. Yeah. I have, I have a recipe on my website um, for walnut parm, which is sort of a Parmesan cheese, like crumbly walnut topping. And I basically devised it just so that my students would eat more walnuts. I love that. Yeah. Um, And yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about some of your recipes because they look very accessible and delicious. I think you made some cake the other day that a ganache cake or something? Oh, for your... I did. I made a, a chocolate olive oil cake. I love baking with olive oil instead of butter. And we'll get to that um, when we talk about olive oil in a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's a, one of my favorite olive oil cakes. Oh, yeah. Well, we could talk about olive oil right now if you want. Sure. So olive oil is a brain-healthy food group. Um, in the Mediterranean diet, olive oil is used predominantly in the cooking and in the food there. Um, in the MIND diet, they specify that it should be the primary cooking oil in your kitchen. And people get confused about cooking oils and health. Um, there's a lot written out there that's just, you know, just basically not true. And certain oils are marketed to be brain healthy even when they're not. So I think it's really simple. I like to have people use extra virgin olive oil for almost all of their cooking. 
if that cooking entails high heat, like if you're searing something in a pan or frying something, I would use avocado oil instead because it has a higher smoke point. And it's also a very healthy, uh, brain-friendly oil. Um, one of the most important things people can do for their brain and for their health in general is just to get rid of a lot of the processed nut and seed oils that you know just tend to be riddled in our kitchens and restaurants, at the grocery store. Um, these things are marketed to be good for you, um, but they're really not. They're the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to just keep it very simple in our cabinet right next to our stove. It's just extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil. How, where do you stand on coconut oil? You know, coconut oil is really interesting. It has been extensively marketed as a brain-healthy food, but there's basically no data to support that at all. Hmm. Um, in fact, there's a series of studies that just came out that were published um, in peer-reviewed journals that show that if you eat a lot of coconut oil, it will actually bump up the LDL cholesterol in your blood, which we know can be a risk factor for heart disease for a lot of people and also for Alzheimer's disease. So the thing with coconut oil is it's primarily saturated fat. And the brain-healthy diet is really one, it's not a low-fat diet, but it's very low in saturated fat. And that's because there have been independent studies looking at the saturated fat content of your diet and whether or not you get Alzheimer's disease later. So the higher the saturated fat in your diet, the greater your risk of Alzheimer's disease. If that diet also includes trans fats, which are the man-made fats you see in a lot of processed foods, you see in a lot of fast foods and fried foods, then that exponentially increases your risk of Alzheimer's. So saturated fats then, so do you avoid butter or do you use it sparingly? I love butter, but I use it sparingly because of this data about saturated fat and Alzheimer's disease. I'm not saying that butter is bad, but I think using it in small amounts can have the same effect. And since I started using more olive oil in my baking and and primarily in my cooking and less butter... I find that when I use butter now, I just, it just, I just really notice the flavor and the texture. Um, mm. When I do buy butter, I try to buy grass-fed butter because it's higher in omega-3 fatty acids. Um, if it comes from grass-fed cows, the butter has more of the nutrients that comes from the grass that they're fed. Um, like the European uh, brands of butter are, are yeah. really um, high quality and good for that. And then is the same, does the same go for ghee? Is that, is that something you use sparingly? I don't use ghee very often, but I think it's a good choice for people who want to cook with butter. It's, you can use it at a higher temperature because the, the solids of the dairy have been taken out. Right. So, but in general, saturated fats are definitely not good for the brain if they're man-made. That's a huge distinction. If they're processed, if they're made in a factory, you know, soybean oil, rice bean oil, bran oil, sunflower oil, all these things that require excessive amounts of heat um, to extract something from a seed or a nut are going to end up being really bad for your brain. Um, the, The saturated fats that come from nature are not so bad, although I do limit them because of the data. I see. Yeah, I know we had kind of chatted on Instagram. I think that you were listening to my interview with Kate Shanahan. Mm-hmm. who talks a lot about the seed oils. And it's just so disappointing that even the top, top restaurants in the country and in the world are still using those man-made oils. And they're in pretty much every processed food in every grocery store. It's just, it's really upsetting. It's really, and it's really difficult to rid these from your diet without being, you know, just 
overly obsessed about the food that you eat, especially when you go out to eat. I believe that, you know, we should enjoy food. We should relax about food. We shouldn't be uptight about it. Um, we should be able to enjoy restaurant meals and meals at friends' houses without, you know, interrogating them about the oils that they use. Right, right. <laughs> um, on the other hand, <laughs> I do travel with a small bottle of high-quality extra virgin olive oil. And I have been known to bring that out at restaurants and dress my own salad because I really don't want to consume a lot of these um, these brain hostile oils in my diet. I don't make a big deal about it, but I just don't want to consume it. Yeah. And I think another point you made about using olive oil in baking, I had never used olive oil in a recipe, but the other day we had one banana and I wanted to make banana bread. And so I Googled everything I could find to find a one banana banana bread recipe and it called for olive oil. And I thought that was really weird, but it actually turned out so well. Oh, olive oil works so well with banana bread because the olive oil in baked goods adds a savory note and banana bread can be so sweet, you know. Uh, yeah. I have a blueberry banana hemp muffin on my website that uses olive oil. And it, it plays on that sweet, savory note really, really well. Do you have a favorite brand of olive oil that you that's widely available? I do. You know, the supermarket brand that I use for everyday cooking is California Olive Ranch. And okay. I like that oil because you can you can trace it back to the orchards and the farms where they press the oil. So they, they have a very, um, very good open model for their business. You know, there's a lot of oils that you get at the supermarket that are mixed blends of different oils. They might be olive oil, but they might be blend with an inferior oil, like a seed oil. Um, and they may say they're from Italy, but that might just mean that they're bottled in Italy, but they could have been trucked there from the Middle East where a lot of these inferior oils come from. So you have to be really savvy when you buy olive oil. So I trust the California Olive Ranch brand. I use that for everyday cooking and baking. And it's not so expensive that I don't worry about, you know, baking with it and whatnot. Um, and then I have high-end olive oil. And these are usually single-origin olive oils produced from one type of olive. Um, and they're usually imported from Spain, Italy, or Greece. And also California has some very good brands. And those are the olive oils I don't really cook with. I drizzle them on foods. I might drizzle them on my pizza or my salad. Um, it's a little bit too precious to cook with. And also this high-end olive oil contains a large amount of polyphenols, which is a phytonutrient that comes from pressing the olives, which are actually fruits. So I think of it as like a fresh fruit juice almost. Mm -hmm. And the polyphenols are highly um, perishable. So that's why the olive oil should be used within a year from opening. It should be used within a year of its harvest date. And you have to be really careful when you cook with it because you don't want to lose those polyphenols. It's one of the huge brain health benefits. Yeah, that makes sense. Where do you stand or where does the research stand in terms of um, meat consumption and fish consumption and Alzheimer's? Well, the research is all over the place. Um, so it's, it's not controversial that fish and seafood is good for your brain. That has been borne out in many, many studies, primarily because fish, especially cold water fish, provide a type of omega-3 fatty acid that the brain uses for its cell membranes. And it's really, really important to have in the diet. And that's the DHA and the EPA. There's another type of omega-3 called ALA, and that's a type found in plant-based sources like walnuts and flax seeds and things of that sort. And those are also important, but the DHA and the EPA is particularly important for brain health. And that's why fish is a brain-healthy food group in the MIND diet, it's also a big part of the Mediterranean diet, as most people know. 
And Americans seem to have a hard time eating as much fish as the Mediterranean diet required, um, which was five to six servings a week. Um, In the United States, most of the fish products that people eat are in the form of fried shrimp at a fast food restaurant. Um, And that's hardly brain healthy, right? Right, right. So we're talking about cold water, water, fish, like salmon, cod, herring. We're talking about the bottom feeders like anchovies and sardines. They're very high in EPA and DHA. So the MIND diet found that only one fish meal a week is enough to get you Alzheimer's risk reduction. Hmm. So you can eat more fish if you want to, but they didn't really find a difference between eating, say, one piece of fish a week and five. Hmm. So that makes it easier to get the fish that you need. On the topic of fish, just really quickly, so what about frozen fish? If it says wild caught, is that still okay or is it best to buy it fresh? Well, almost all fish is going to be frozen on the boat. It's it's very, very unlikely that it's actually fresh unless you live on a coast near a harbor and okay. you go down to the fishmonger. So one of the best types of fish to purchase is wild-caught Alaska salmon because Alaska is so strict about their fishing procedures that most companies, you can trace the fish right back to the river and to the boat where it was caught. Um, and huh. that is frozen on the boat, which retains a lot of its brain-healthy nutrients. Um, salmon has a lot of vitamin D, too, which is a great thing to get in your food as well. Um, so I buy wild-caught Alaska salmon. I tend to stay away from farmed salmon. The fatty acid profile is not as good. Um, there may be parasites. I mean, fish farming is evolving, and aquaculture is getting better and better. So if I had knowledge of a really great fish farm with a good good quality product, then I wouldn't hesitate to, to, you know, eat it. But for the most part, I'm sticking with wild caught fish. Okay. And then what about meat? And then meat. So when we get into the five brain unhealthy food groups, um, red meat is actually one of those. And what the mind diet said with their 10 brain healthy food groups and the five brain unhealthy ones is not to say that you should never eat these foods in the unhealthy groups, just to eat less of them and be aware that you should limit them in your diet. Um, Mm. And so for red meat, they're recommending no more than four servings a week. And that serving size is no more than three ounces, which is about the size of a deck of cards. Okay. So, you know, the other point too is you don't have to eat fish or eat meat to have a brain healthy diet. Like let's say you don't eat any animal products at all. You can certainly follow the 10 brain healthy food groups, making up, you know, your omega threes in the plant-based world, as opposed to, you know, getting them fish products. So the, the diet is designed to be flexible, to fit in with lots of different types of eating patterns, um, if that makes sense. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. 
Now, back to the episode. What about tofu and all of the soy products that are, you know, hitting the market, the Impossible Burger and all of those things? Well, it's a good question. Soy has been very controversial for a long time because uh, studies have shown that certain soy products, usually these are the, the, the isolated soy protein that gets industrially produced and put into things like bars and processed foods, and therefore you consume in a higher quantity than you would if it was a whole food. Um, has been associated with, with the growth of cancer cells in a petri dish. Um, and so there's this long story of soy and women's health and breast cancer and all sorts of things that, you know, make us wonder if soy is a good idea. But the best way to think about it is consuming soy in a whole food form, I think, is really good for you. It's not one of the brain healthy food groups. There's not enough data to support soy products as, you know, one of those. But there's definitely a tradition of longevity and brain health and heart health in certain cultures like Japan um, who consume whole foods, like good quality tofu, like actual soybeans, as in edamame and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I've never tried one, but from what I understand, the Impossible Burger that's out, I'm pretty sure it has a bunch of the seed oils that you also mentioned in it. I mean, the ingredient list isn't super clean. So yeah, I would, I would totally agree with you on that, Brooke. I, I haven't tried it. I tried a, a, a type of, of, um, a prototype of this way back in the day at a James Beard awards, um, event where chefs were mixing mushrooms with some other things to make sort of a burger, like, um, you know, concoction. It was really good, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not very impressed with the ingredients in these manufactured, you know, artificial meats. Um, I would prefer to just eat um, grass-fed meat from a source that I trust, right? Or not a factory farmed meat, um, but you know, a local rancher or a local farmer, and just eat less of it. Yeah, or like you said, um, you know, make use whole soybeans or black beans, or make your own veggie burger patty versus you know buying the patty that's supposed to taste like meat and bleed like meat. I don't know. It kind of grosses me out, but. <laughs> Absolutely. And the thing, the thing that, you know, this wasn't part of the mind diet because they didn't get so fussy as to tell people what kind of meat they should buy. Um, but, and it's very hard to find good research on this, honestly, but meat that comes from a factory where cows are primarily fed GMO corn and soy products has a lot more inflammatory factors in it than, you know, like a, a cow that was grazing on a ranch and fed most and fed only grass. So what the cow eats is super important. Michael Pollan said that years ago, you know, know what, what your, you know, what your food eats. Um, and so that I think that factory farmed meat, like we see in a lot of fast food places has a lot of omega-6 fatty acids in it. And those are the ones that are inflammatory for blood vessels and brain health. We need omega-6s but we don't need them in a 14 to one ratio over omega threes like we do in America. We need it more like in a one to one ratio with omega threes. So less omega sixes, more omega threes. And that's why buying high quality meat really matters. It's also and it's also better for the environment. Right. And I think the point you make is so good that if you cut back your servings of meat, you're not buying as much of it. So then maybe you have more money to spend on the nicer types of meat than you know, if you're trying to eat it every day, you're buying cheaper, but this way you have more money maybe to buy just a few pieces of really nice 100% grass-fed meat. 
um, for your week or month or whatever. Well, absolutely. And in the Mediterranean countries where this diet was born, you know, meat was really a special occasion food. Um, it was for feasting. It was for celebrations. It was, it was for Sunday supper. It wasn't consumed at every meal or every day. So aside from, so you mentioned meat and saturated fat are two of the kind of unhealthy foods when it comes to Alzheimer's. What about, what are the other three? So the, the brain unhealthy food groups are broken down into number one, pastries and sweets. Mm. And, it's, and the Mind Diet says you can have up to five servings a week. So I would say a pastry would be you know, like a croissant or a muffin or some sort of, you know, package or process type, you know, tart or pastry. Um, in a sweet, well, we all know what those are, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not saying you can't have sweets. I mean, I eat a lot of sweets. And I have a lot of recipes for sweets on my website, but up to five a week. And that's mm-hmm. doable. Mm-hmm. Um, butter, less than a tablespoon a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's not a lot of butter. But like I said, they took a real hard line on the saturated fat content of this MIND diet because of the data surrounding saturated fat and Alzheimer's disease. So less than a tablespoon of butter. And like we said, that should be grass-fed. The next one is cheese. And people are not going to be very happy about this one. But um, no more than an ounce of cheese a week. And with that, I would give the caveat that, you know, that's not very much cheese. Cheese is mostly saturated fat. Although I prefer types of cheeses that are more pungent, more flavorful. A little goes a long way. And they're they're also lower in fat like the Parmesan Reggiano cheeses, Pecorino cheeses, feta cheese, things of that nature. So I eat a lot more cheese than the mind diet would dictate. I eat cheese more like a Mediterranean person would, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not snacking on cheese. I'm not taking big bags of shredded cheddar and, and covering my food with it. Yeah. Um, the restaurants, I'm very careful to order things that are not smothered with cheese. Um, and I think that's a big problem with a lot of the food that we have in, in the U.S. and in restaurants is it's cheese heavy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that cheese is really not that good. Well, and the new, not new, but in the keto craze, I feel like a lot of people are eating right. all of the things that you're saying to maybe be more mindful of. So just sticks of butter in coffee and then just eating all cheese and red meat and these big casseroles. It's kind of just, you know, n- all fat sometimes no veggies in posts, I see. Absolutely. And, you know, the ketogenic diet is very interesting as it pertains to Alzheimer's. There's not a lot of good data to guide us to say that a ketogenic diet is good for the brain long-term. We just don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. The studies, you know, are ongoing or still need to be done. Um, But it may be that the brain can tolerate more saturated fat in the absence of sugar. Right. Um, so a lot of these studies are done on, you know, processed food in America, which is a combination of fat, sugar, and salt that we know is damaging to the brain. So if you just carve out the saturated fat, and let's say you make that saturated fat really healthy, it, it may be okay, but we just don't know. Yeah. So I, I can't recommend the ketogenic diet specifically for Alzheimer's prevention, um, but I would love to see better data on that. And then the last group, the last brain healthy food group is fast and fried food which we've kind of talked about. And the Mind Diet says no more than one serving of fast or fried food in a week. So do you think it goes a long way if people just get back to the kitchen and cut out a lot of the processed foods they're eating? 
Absolutely. I think that's most of this. Number one, get rid of the junky oils. Number two, get rid of the packaged and processed foods. There's something called advanced glycation end products or AGEs. I don't know if people are super aware of this yet, but AGEs seem to be the thing in packaged and processed food that are damaging to the brain. You can actually see them in the brain cells of Alzheimer's victims. And AGEs are what happen when you have a protein source, say meat, um, that's subjected to a high heat in the presence of sugar. And what happens is these proteins get glycosylated or they get a, you know, a sugar group added to it. And these are highly inflammatory to brain cells. So one of the things I like to do in my cooking school is teach people cooking methods where they're not creating a lot of AGEs. And limiting AGEs in your food comes from two different things. Number one, picking whole foods that don't have much in the way of AGEs in the first place. Um, and number two, cooking it in such a way that you don't create a lot of these end products. Mm. So how do you do that? Well, basically, you cook very gently. Um, there's not a lot of frying going on, um, as you might imagine, although I love a fried artichoke. <laughs> in good olive oil. You know, I'm never going to turn that down. Right. Um, or uh, I love French fries sometimes, you know, in good olive oil with lots of salt. So I'm not saying that's a never, never, ever thing, but I don't fry a lot for sure. I'm mostly cooking food with slow heat in the presence of liquid. So braising is good. Steaming is good. Slow cooking. I use my Instant Pot a lot, even though it may be counterintuitive that the pressure is like, you know, high heat. It also retains the moisture and the nutrients in the food because it's in this um, contained environment. Um, I roast things in the oven a lot, but I try not to roast over 400 degrees because a lot of times I'm roasting with olive oil. And I don't want the olive oil to become damaged. Um, I'm baking a lot with olive oil, which doesn't damage it. Um, things of that sort. And then we haven't touched on these. I'm sure that there's research relating to Alzheimer's prevention as well with sleep, movement, stress management. What can you say about those? Absolutely. As, as important as diet is, I would say exercise is just as important. There's a lot of data to back this up that we should be exercising at least 30 minutes a day aerobically every day. And we should be adding resistance training. Just 20 minutes, two to three times a week has been shown to increase the brain drive neurotropic factor in our brains, which is what we need to repair brain cells and build new brain cells. So exercise is extremely important. One thing that um, we know about Alzheimer's disease is that cardiovascular health is super important to prevent it. Um, how could it not be when you think about the, you know, the complicated network of blood vessels that go to our brain. Right. So there's a big overlap between vascular dementia caused from unhealthy blood vessels and Alzheimer's. So anything we can do to be cardiovascularly healthy, like exercising, also translates to a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. Now, sleep is incredibly important, we're finding. And there's more and more data on this, which I'm really excited about. But basically what they're finding is that while we sleep, there's your brain goes into a cleanup mode where certain toxins are basically sifted from the brain and expelled through the cerebral spinal fluid. Hmm. And you need a certain amount of deep sleep to go into this cleanup mode. Um, one of the things that is expelled is amyloid protein, which is that sticky protein that we don't really want clinging to our brains. It's associated with Alzheimer's. Um, so you have to get a certain amount of high-quality 
both REM sleep and deep sleep in order to get your brain in its cleanup mode. I've heard before, I forget where, but thinking about sleep is almost like throwing your brain into the washing machine overnight and letting it clean out. And then if you don't get enough high quality sleep, it's like pulling the wash out before it's done. It's not fully clean. It's soaking wet. Um, but I like to think about that. I love sleeping. So that's it's great. News. Absolutely true. And I was sleep deprived for most of my professional life as an OBGYN. And I always prided myself on the fact that I could go with no sleep at all, or mm-hmm. maybe just three or four hours of sleep a night, because I was always up at crazy hours delivering babies. Um, and it wasn't until I retired that I realized that I perform better on seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I don't think there really are that many people that can get away with less. Right. And it is, I think it is a source of pride for many people because you can, you did function, right? You were a functioning human being, but that doesn't necessarily mean you were functioning optimally. Yes. And, you know, I'm trying to make up for all that brain damage I did (laughs) as a resident doctor, but, um, but sleep is so important. The other thing about sleep is that, you know, if we eat too late in the evening, it really can disrupt our sleep and our ability to get that deep sleep. And I think of it as, you know, if you're constantly bombarding your body with metabolites from from food that you eat, your brain has to process that and it can't switch gears into that cleanup mode. So Mm -hmm. I try not to eat late into the evening. You know, I have a cutoff of somewhere between eight and nine o'clock or roughly two to three hours before I go to bed. And I also like to practice intermittent fasting most days because it's again, you know, even if I'm fasting for just 12 hours meaning I don't eat anything from the time I go to bed until, you know, late in the morning the next day. It gives my brain time to clean up and not always constantly metabolizing the food that I eat. And there's some data that shows that that will improve memory in older adults, that it may be beneficial for preventing Alzheimer's. There's a lot of hot research on this topic right now as well. Where does the research stand on stress? It's all over the place. But we know that stress creates catecholamines in our bloodstream, which are like the epinephrine and norepinephrine that can make your blood pressure go up and can also, um, you know, impair your memory because when you're stressed out all the time, it's, it's hard to have, um, short, it's hard to have your short-term memory process things and keep them into long-term memory. So one, one of the most common reversible causes of memory loss is stress. When people are stressed out, they have a hard time really retaining things. And we all know this if we've gone through stressful periods of time in our life. Um, so stress is super important. Stress reduction is one of the components of, you know, a brain-healthy lifestyle that's thought to prevent Alzheimer's disease as well. And for you, that could be yoga. It could be meditation. It could be, you know, long walks. It could be being unplugged. Um, it could be making sure you get all that sleep. It could be any of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, I could literally talk to you all day, but obviously you have other things to do besides talk to me. I'm so grateful for your time. The last question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Well, I love the name of your podcast, first of all, The Health Investment, because that's, oh, that's how I think of all these things. So I tend to look at everything through the lens of brain health, because if I take care of my brain with you know, the nutrition and the lifestyle things that we just talked about, then I know that my risk of Alzheimer's is going to be less. I know that I'm going to be more likely to live longer. I'm more likely to be happier in those later years of life as well. And because we're not talking about anything crazy new here, 
all of these things also reduce other types of chronic diseases. So I, I think of the brain health as filtering down into every other aspect of my life. I love that. And I love how you said towards the beginning that it's something we've come to accept. Like a lot of these chronic illnesses, I think it's like, oh, I'm 75, then I got Alzheimer's. But it doesn't have to be necessarily. And I like when guests like you talk about more your health span and how staying healthy as long as possible instead of just lifespan of, oh, no, you know, how long am I going to live? It's more how long can I live healthy? Absolutely. Health span, lifespan. I love those terms. I like to use the word brain span, which means, you know, the how long your brain is actively engaged in life. You know, we want our brain span to match our lifespan, right? Right. We don't want our brain span to, you know, go kaput at age 70 and then live for 20 years longer. That's the tragedy of Alzheimer's. For sure. Well, where can listeners follow and find you? Well, I have a website called Brain Health Kitchen. And we didn't get to all of the brain healthy food groups, but there's an article on the homepage if people go there about what to eat to fend off Alzheimer's. And I described all of the brain healthy food groups and also the amounts that the Mind Diet studied. Um, there's another article on the homepage called Foods to Avoid, and that details those five brain unhealthy food groups we talked about. So I have a website. I have a newsletter that I love just writing out to what, what I think of as my brain health ambassadors out in the world. These are the people that get it about brain health and, and who are living a brain healthy lifestyle and also telling all their friends and family about it. So I send out a monthly newsletter. Sometimes it has new recipes. Um, sometimes it has just what I'm reading in the brain health world that I think people could benefit from. Um, what else? I'm on Instagram a lot. I love reaching out to people on Instagram. I'll have sometimes original recipes there. I'm on Facebook. Um, sometimes if you follow on Instagram, I'll be giving away books and, um, and tickets to special events as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'll put links to all of those, especially to your website. And then if somebody wanted to sign up for your newsletter, they can do that right through your website, right? Uh-huh. There's, a, there's a sidebar with a box that says, uh, makes it easy to sign up. Awesome. I'm going to go sign up right now. So oh, <laughs> the somebody I was talking about is me. <laughs> great. I'll look, I'll, I'll look forward to it. Awesome. Well, truly appreciate your time, Annie. I love everything you shared. And I know this will be a real hit for listeners. Oh, I hope so. And, um, and people are, can be free to you know, hit me up with questions either on Instagram or by replying to the email that the newsletter comes from. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for your time. You bet. Nice talking to you, Brooke. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.